0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're so blessed to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So we'd like to ask that if you're able, if you could stand to your feet as we worship the Lord in song. Uh, Stars say find their way at the side.
1: You may be seated.
2: Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we ask to approach your glorious throne in the name of our Redeemer and coming King, Jesus. We marvel that we can communicate directly with you in requesting help resolving our frustrations which sometime may arise in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as you forgive us daily, we seek to take this opportunity to ask you to place it upon our hearts to forgive anyone we may feel has offended us. Father, we want to thank you for your grace towards us because we know that we sin daily. We do not want to sin, But that prospect is constantly at our door, awaiting a chance to ensnare us. For that reason, we respectfully request that you protect us from the evil one who roars about like a lion, trying to catch and devour each of us, just as our beloved brother Peter warned. Therefore, Father, help us to look for the good in others, that we may extend to them the same grace you extend to us. We pray for the opportunity to reconcile, to restore, and to recompense those whom we have sinned against. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Please join me in repeating his praying words saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.
1: Amen. Well, uh, hey, good morning. Welcome to LJCC. We're so glad to have you here with us for worship. Uh, Just a quick reminder, on your way inside, you should have received a bulletin. On the bulletin, you'll find both a prayer card and a connect card. And if you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. We encourage you to take a moment and fill out that connect card and let us get to know you. And you know, on the opposite side, uh, there's a prayer card. It says, Let us pray for you. If you or anyone you know needs prayer, uh, please take a moment and fill out that prayer card. And uh, after the service, uh, you can deposit these cards in the box on the wall by the entrance or in the boxes in the foyer. And with that, I'd like to invite up Pastor Steve to lead us in a message.
3: Hey, thank you. Well, how well do you know San Diego? Uh, if, if you were asked to drive to some part of the city, would you know how to get there? Would you know the fastest, best way to get there? If somebody dropped you in L.A., would you just faint, throw up? What I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know would you know how to find your way around L.A.? Uh, how about San Francisco? Uh, how about London? Uh, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but uh, if you've been to London, you know what an amazing place that is. And if you've ever taken a cab in London... You've been amazed by the, the the cabbies. The greatest cabbies in the world are in London, and here's why: not pride of place. It's because um, they uh, they before they can become a cabbie, before they can get a license to drive a cab, they have to know what's called the knowledge. The knowledge. That's what they call it. The knowledge. And uh, I had an uncle, uh, Tommy now deceased, I died a couple years ago. Uh, he was a London cabbie, uh, which sounds like a really humble thing to do, but if back in the day, if you were a London cabbie, you had a vacation home in Spain. It was a very, very lucrative thing. Um, and all this comes back to me because uh, uh, about a week ago, uh, two, they're like nieces to me, but two second cousins were visiting, uh, Kitty and Alice. And they're part of four kids that would be the grandkids of my Uncle Tommy. And uh, Tommy, the you know, I think Tommy finished high school. It would be super fun funny. Because so all these four kids, you know, it's kind of a, uh, an interesting, interesting story in that um, Kitty and her husband are leaving the Mayo Clinic to move to the East Coast. He's been a, in surgical stuff there. She went to St. Andrews University, went to Oxford her youngest sister are getting a PhD at St. Andrews. Her brother is with the equivalent of a British Navy SEAL. And Alice, um, who is visiting with Kitty, uh, is a professional artist and an art teacher. They're super fun people, and they're humble people, just fun people. But when we were talking about Tommy, uh, when they were, they just dropped in on their way through and we had dinner with them. And so we're talking about Tommy and being a, a cabbie and how neat that was. But the knowledge meant that Tommy got on a bicycle with. Uh, a map, a, a really not just a map, but a, a directory of every street and lane and, and alley in london and he he rode every one of those and to take the test to get the license, he had to be able to go anywhere in London now, if you have been to london lately they 've changed how they access the core of the city it 's so crowded that you that it 's now filled with all these arcane one way different times of day, one way and and, and, and so if you're in a cab, you're thinking, I'm being ripped off right now. Because I asked to go to so, so-and-so, and I know a straight line right across town. It's got to be two miles. And you're driving this way and that way, and if you say something to the cabbie, if you say, hey, man, uh, I thought I was going to, and he will look at you first of all in the rearview mirror and decide whether or not just to get you out of his cab. Or if he's in a good mood, he'll say, how long have you been a cabbie in London? <laughs> And then if you say, no, I'm not, obviously I'm not a cabbie in London. Why are we going in this direction? He'll explain to you the arcane uh, you know, thing. Now they do it on, on uh, scooters. You still have to do the knowledge, but you have to do it on scooters. But it's this massive amount of information. And if you've been to London and you drive around there, you think, how could anybody know all this stuff? And while you're driving, they're pointing out things. Oh, that's this, that's this, that's that, that's this, that's that, 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 that. You think, where did they get this knowledge? Why am I even telling you this story? Well, I'm a filler. I don't have anything to say today, so I'm just trying to, you know, <laughs> fill time. No, because when, when we gather every week to worship God, part of that worship is opening the Bible together and saying, what's here, and why is it here, and what does it mean to me, and what could or should it mean to me? And, and the reality is that in our culture uh, that, that um, was founded on people who could quote the Bible backwards and forwards, I mean, literally, every Catholic pilgrim, Protestant pilgrim, any stripe of pilgrim, uh, for the most part, were people who came with a Bible in their hand. And, and, and you, you, you know, when you talk about being a Christian nation, it's, it's too far of a stretch to say we're a Christian nation. But certainly we're a nation shaped by Christian values and, and Christian people. And that's embedded in who we are. And yet, and, and if you read the charter of every major university, that was chartered in, in the first century or two of this nation's history, every one of them have in their charter a description of why it's so important to know the Word of God and why the mission of this university, Harvard University, Princeton University, uh, Dartmouth University was a school for uh, American, uh, uh, Native Americans. All of these schools, the mandate was we want people to know the Word of God so they can know every other word and have a basis for which to evaluate what is true and what is not, right? Is that indoctrination? No, it's the knowledge. It's the knowledge. And now we're at a point where uh, people who would have a sincere, genuine faith have no idea what the knowledge is. I can't find a way around the Bible. And you might be one of them today, and I'm not trying to shame you or insult you. I'm just simply saying, how can you make your way around the kingdom of God if you don't know the knowledge? It's so easily accessible Now, little kids uh, don't know where they live or how to get from one place to another. Why? Because they're not driving. They're not driving. They go the same place, you know, school, doctor, whatever, sports, you know. uh, But they don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there until they get a driver's license. And then they realize, this is really hard. And their parents are thinking, no, you think it's hard? I think it's hard watching you learn how to drive. And, and, and being part of the process. Well, the neat thing is you see a kid start to put together the knowledge of all the places they've been, but they didn't know how to get there. So we raise up kids to have some aspect of knowledge. Like right now, there's a bunch of kids having a great time with Connie and crew. And they're learning the content of the Bible. And We're not so much tagging Bible verses to it. We're simply teaching them concepts and then they're going to find that it comes from a specific place in the bible and there's a verse to help you find that you know a locator And, and at some point we want those kids to say i'm starting to understand this so much that i can find my way around the bible and fill in the details at some point oftentimes that stops after kids get out of sunday school and adults stop reading the bible and stop actually getting to understand it and therefore their faith is super boring you cannot have an exciting, life-changing faith if you don't know the knowledge. You don't know where you're going, how you're going to get there, and everything you drive by, you go, oh, that's interesting. What is it? I don't know. I don't know. It said Leviticus on the sign. I have no idea why it matters. You know, It said you know, uh, Chronicles. It said Mark. It said John. It said Revelation. I don't know. Um, and so what we try to do here is to say, how do we gather together and dip a toe into the knowledge every week, and try to put together a map so that we would say, you know, I think I'm going to know my way around the area. Now, having lived in California for uh, most of my life, I can pretty much tell you how to get anywhere in California. It's just amazing when I think about it. If you say, well, I, I want to go up to Redding, what should I do? First of all, you want to fly fish through Redding. There's a river that you can actually fly fish all the way through the major part of all the middle of Redding. And then all around it, there's these other things going on. There's the Trinity Alps, and you go here, and or or San Francisco, or in L.A. I can tell you how to get around these places. Um, I lived in San Jose for a long time, uh, and when I go to San Jose, I am completely lost because I knew how to get everywhere there, Silicon Valley, the heart of Silicon Valley, and now it has been so built, there's so many more freeways, I'm bewildered, and I have to kind of relearn the knowledge. So where are you in this journey with Jesus about getting to know the lay of the land of his kingdom uh, how are you doing getting to know the knowledge are you putting in the time necessary to connect the dots to make some sense of it so that's not just a bunch of information that apropos to nothing it's irrelevant and disconnected from the actual life you live uh, i love this um, a few years ago we we helped subsidize uh a a, um, a veritas forum at ucsd and the veritas forum goes to major universities all universities they can get into around the country. And they bring in great scholars to talk about why they have a faith. And, and uh, some of the scholars uh, are so new in their faith, they're really kind of, oh, I'm really nervous. I don't, know my, I don't know the Bible that well. And there's a woman named um, Rebecca McCullough. And her job for the last eight years has been to get those scholars up to speed. She wrote a book recently called Confronting uh, Christianity. And then she's written another that came out, and I, I told you about that one at the beginning of the year. A new book just came out, Confronting Jesus. So you can ask all, she's, she helps these people put these questions together. Super neat. Uh, one of those people that we brought a few years ago to UCSD uh, was a man named John Lennox. John Lennox is one of the greatest mathematicians at Oxford. And when Stephen Hawking said, Uh, the the great physicist, the brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking said, you know, so he said, what do you think about faith? He said, well, people who believe in Jesus and the Bible uh, are just people who are afraid of the dark. It's a fairy, he said literally, it's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Well, the person who asked that, I was a BBC reporter, immediately made a beeline over to the other end of campus, there's all these colleges at Oxford, and found John Lennox and said, Dr. Lennox, uh, tell me, you know, why do you believe in Jesus and the Bible? Uh, Dr. Hawking just said, it's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And he said, actually, atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. And it wasn't just a smart-alecky kind of a response. It was that he had so immersed himself in the light of God's word to clarify where he was and who he was and where he was going and what it means to be on the journey to where he's going. That all of a sudden, he can articulate that. As much as he can lead you through esoteric and arcane math, he can also say, here's how you find your way through the word of God. Here's why the first word and the last word all matter and everything in between. So I'm telling you this because what, we're, what we do every week is this. Some version of this. So last week Scott Schimmel was here. Uh, we were talking about uh, the, the, um, the message of Jesus uh, f- from the new year up until Easter. And now we're taking it to the next step. And we're saying God is in the details. So we're saying we walked through uh, Matthew's gospel in, the, in terms of the big chunks. Now we're going back to Matthew's gospel and pulling in the other gospels as well to say, uh, where, what are the details of this? And So Scott last week talked about the detail of truth. And I want to talk to you about some details that, that come out of uh, Matthew's gospel, and touches uh, Luke's gospel speaks to it as well, uh, related to forgiveness and temptation and evil. It's gonna be a happy message. <laughs> this, we're gonna look at the, basically the second half of the, of the Lord's prayer. But but when we get together like this uh, last week or this week and next week, we can't do the whole Bible every time. It's, it, it, we, we'd never get anywhere. We've got to take some little bit of the knowledge and say, let's talk about this little bit of the knowledge. These four streets, this little neighborhood, let's talk about this and see how it connects to the great city of you know, London or New York or um, you know, the kingdom of God. Um, by the way, I have a friend uh, uh, who I grew up with in um, San Jose, in Willow Glen, a little suburb of San Jose. And um, he he lives in California part of the year, and he lives in New York part of the year. And he was trying to figure out what to do, so he's, everybody who would visit New York would, would want to him to show them around New York. And he's a big happy-go-lucky guy and his family owned this massive car dealership. And so he was a car guy. And and he had this really neat Mercedes SUV. And he would take him around town. And he realized I don't have enough time in my day or week to do this for everybody who wants to come visit me. So he, he got some unemployed actors. I, I repeat myself. He got he got some, he got some unemployed actors who said you guys, I'm going to teach you guys how to show people around Manhattan. And they said, "Hey, man, we grew up here." I said, "He said, I bet you don't know it as well as I know it. How do you think you know it so well? You're from California because I've been driving it." He, he a couple of these guys, and they were massively entertaining people. You can imagine. He taught them how to do tours. So he, he called his little business New York, my kind of town. It was the third most popular tour in New York to this day. Behind the helicopter tour and the gray line tours, it's the New York, my kind of town. It's like two guys driving black Mercedes SUVs. So every time a friend will go to New York, whether they're kids, college kids, business people who have offices in New York, I'll say, you know what, you should do a tour with Jim Smythe. And they go, why would I do a tour of New York? I have an office there. Did I mention I have an office there? I used to live there. I just take, I'll pay for it. If, if you don't like it, I'll, I'll reimburse you. Everybody comes back saying, that was the most mind-boggling thing I've ever done because the city I thought I knew, all of a sudden I know it like I never knew it before. So this is what we're trying to do so that you would say, well, I'm late to the party. I didn't grow up in New York City. You know, I didn't grow up in the kingdom of God. Uh, how am I ever going to get enough knowledge? just by doing what Jim did. He'd say to people, what do you like, fashion? All right. He'd take them everywhere in, in those five boroughs that has something significant to do with fashion. If you said food, he'd go, great. Uh, we're going to go here, 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 here. What kind of food? Uh, especially chocolate. Or I want to go to pubs. I want the best hot dog. Papaya king or on the way. You know what I mean? So he had this, this is what we're doing and we want you to walk away saying, little by little, I'm finding I'm so comfortable making my way through the word of God. And then, being able to tell other people about why it matters. So this is what we're doing. God is in the details, and if you don't take time to know the details, you're always going to be treading on the surface, and you're going to be freaked out. When I used to go, when I surfed in Santa Cruz, it's cold, murky, and tons of kelp, and it freaked me out. And so I thought, this is ridiculous, you know. I, I so I went and I was like 16, I went and got a a a scuba diving license so I could go down underneath it. And once I got down underneath and and started diving, either snorkeling or seriously diving off the coast, it's like, I'm so comfortable down here. So now when I was surfing and a a big hunk of kelp would grab my board and all of a sudden I'd go like this, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't hear music, dun, 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 dun. I would think, ah, it's kelp, you know? And so now I was fascinated, not fearful. This is what we want to do for you. Why am I telling you this? Because you are the people who are going to help other people get this. Most of you know the Bible and are reading the Bible, but you are the people who are the connection to the people who don't and won't and can't because it's too hard. It's too scary. And yet they've got master's degrees and PhDs. They've got massive amounts of experience in really interesting fields of inquiry and study. They're doing significant things in the world. They can tell you everything there is to know about little kids because they teach preschool. They can tell you how to do surgery on a person without even taking the part out of the body. You know, they're, they're, the, the variety of people you meet is amazing. Wouldn't it be great if you could be not the hero, hey, I know the Bible, you don't, but the guide. Have you ever been curious about the Bible? And they say, well, yeah, but not that much, because I don't know anybody who knows it and thinks it's worth reading. Well, I do. I think it's worth reading. You want to get together and talk about it. So we're going to move quickly through some some little bits of, of the neighborhood, a little bit of the knowledge, a little bit of the kingdom of God here t- today. And, and I want you to be reading it or thinking about it and hearing these verses not as Steve is giving me information, but we together are processing content that's significant to our lives. This is the greatest legacy we can give our kids and our grandkids. This is the most significant resource you can own and have available to you. This is the one thing that is forever in your life. Everything else you own and have done stays here. Only you and the word of God are eternal. So why not spend some time really focusing what really matters for the long haul and you being the guide for the people closest to you who may or may not be interested, but they won't for sure be interested if you're not the one who's willing to be the guide. So we're about guide school here. We're equipping, as you say in Ephesians, we were equipping, equipping the saints for ministry, equipping the believers of God for ministry. So God created us to bless us. That, that's, that's the first big message out of Genesis 1. Everything that God created in that first chapter of the Bible ends with, and God said it was good. God saw that it was good. And when he made us, it was good, good. It was very good. That, that story is retold in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 it all comes apart because the, 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 the people God created say, I think we can improve on this. I think God might be holding out on, on us, and I think we can actually do better. And, and that would created a massive break in the relationship. But God's goodness, in a sense, was disrupted for those people to experience it, those people who are our ancestors. And so that curse devolves to us that we're disconnected and we don't know or we doubt God's goodness. But God has not stopped being good. What what we see documented in Genesis 1 still continues. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. and So God wants to bless you. That means God wants to benefit you in a way to experience life as it was meant to be lived. In a fallen world, in a broken world, in in a disrupted world, in your disrupted life, your disconnected life, the best moments are great moments, but a lot of time you're saying, I wish I could do this every day because it's kind of iffy how I handle my life. But God wants to bless you. You might not always see it, you might not always feel it. He wants us to experience his, he wants us to experience his goodness. He created us to thrive in it. And when, when the, the, the disciples of Jesus said, look, we, we get this good thing you're doing. We see how wonderful it is. You're telling us about God's kingdom and what it means. How do we pray then? Uh, they had prayers that they would pray, good prayers. But they said, you know, is there, is there a way to you know, dial right into this? Because their experience with Jesus was so personal. It was like God was with us. And then they finally figured out, oh, because God is with us. This is God with us, Jesus. And so how how should we pray? And he gives them this prayer that Nils prayed for us uh, this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. So this is all about how the Father is blessing us, providing for us. Uh, His kingdom is the source of our provision. And we don't have time to unpack all that that means, but we will be unpacking this notion of the kingdom of God as we continue week to week. And then in the prayer, we're led to focus on what gets in the way of that. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we're going to reflect on that. So we're just picking out a couple streets in the hood, right? With all the content, but I've just given you, here's the lay of the land. We're in this part of London. And now we're going to focus on these streets. And so if you said, hey, I'm going to go to London, what should I do? I'll ask you, where are you staying? Uh, We're staying in Kensington. Ah, in Kensington. Okay. So here's what you need to know about Kensington. Uh, And then if you want to go to the other places, you you know, right? So we're just taking a few streets um, in these verses Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we'll start with that last part and work backwards to forgiveness. So forgiveness, temptation, evil. Starting with evil. Deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus Christ has delivered us from the evil one. That's what we celebrated at Easter. And evil is the opposite of live. I mean, it sounds kind of almost trite to say that, but it's true. You know, E-V-I-L... L-I-V-E. If you want to understand in the most simple uh, reductionist way what evil is, it's the opposite of live. It undoes the quality of life. It it makes the goodness of God feel like it's not happening in my life. Uh, So Satan's attempt is to reverse God's design. That's what it means by the evil one. We have an enemy, it's not people. Satan is our enemy. He's called the deceiver, an angel of light, an impersonator, A prevaricator, somebody who tells you something that he can't deliver, makes promises he can't keep. Evil is always personal. It's personal in that there's this evil one who has been defeated and will eventually be completely uh, crushed. But also, evil is resident in us. And it gets in the way of our capacity to live, undermines our capacity to enjoy life. Evil defaces life and robs us of peace and prosperity. It makes us totally insecure, uptight, And uh, nervous. That's why we've mentioned this. I've said this many times, uh, for those of you who've been around here, that as soon as things are going well for us, we tend to go, oh, no, oh, no, no, it's going too well. Right? You know this. Uh, It's going well. Something bad's got to happen now. Why? Because it always does. It can't go that well for that long before something goes wonky. So evil defaces life, robs us of peace and prosperity, And it leads to despair and death. How are we doing so far? I just love talking about evil. It's so happy. It's like depressing, isn't it? All the evil things that can happen in the world. And this is what happens when you uh, get married. You go, gosh, I hope nothing ever happens to that person I've married. When you have kids, oh my gosh, are my kids going to be okay? You have grandkids, oh my gosh. Because now you've lived long enough to know all the crazy things that can happen in the world. You go, what about my grandkids? And we try our best to get out of that loop of evil, but we can't. You might say, well, I'm a really good person. And in fact, everybody starts with, I'm a very good person. We all believe we're good people, and we're all trying to be good people. But on that continuum of outrageous evil, and where you think you are on that continuum, it's not that far apart. We have the capacity to do things that we would never have imagined ourselves doing. Put put yourself... in in the right circumstances, and you have the capacity, not saying you'd want to, but you would feel forced to do some horrible things. If you're on the Titanic, and you're a big, strong man, and you're pushing little old ladies and small children and moms with babies out of your way to get on a boat, you know what it's like to be at your core uh, human nature. But Not everybody did that. Right. Some people resisted that. But we have the capacity to do that. So the big thing here is that God delivers us from evil. We can't deliver ourselves from evil, God delivers us from evil. That's what the cross is about. The sins of the world on God himself, breaking the power of sin and death, setting us up to live into this new nature, a new experience of being a person. So we can't escape evil, but we can be delivered from it by the power of God. We will always have the capacity for evil, but we don't have to exercise it or indulge it. There is help. We have a power greater than ourselves. And who is it? It's Jesus, the one who's risen from the dead, the one who lives, the one who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, who will return in glory and create a new heaven and a new earth. All evil will be judged and dealt with. and There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Wow. So we're not afraid of evil. We don't have to focus on evil. We shouldn't deny it and and pretend it doesn't exist. But We don't have to walk around being paranoid. I know the one, you know the one who has defeated evil. And even in the face of the most horrible evil we can experience, He will deliver us ultimately. There's a picture in the Book of Revelation. All these martyred people, people who've been killed for their faith, And it shows them underneath the altar. Not like they're all crowded in there as little, you know, prisoners. But it just is a picture of they're all under the altar that represents the, the body and blood of Christ. And the, and they say to the Lord, Lord, how long will we be here? And He says, it'll, it, it won't be forever. <laughs> You know, it's all coming. it all happen. You see, there is uh, righteousness ultimately. Evil has a short lifespan. And you might say, well, gosh, I know people who died and it was horrible and they didn't get any relief. Right. The book of uh, Hebrews uh, in uh, chapter 11 talks about all these people who live by faith. And it says, and none of them got what they had hoped for. So I'm not saying you won't experience evil or perpetuate evil. I'm just simply saying, It has been dealt with, it will be dealt with. In the meantime, we have someone greater than the evil one. And that's the power of this prayer. God, deliver us from the evil one, because you can, and your goodness uh, motivates you to do it. And we know that, that's what we celebrate every Sunday when we worship Jesus. So call evil what it is, reject it, commit yourself to God's righteous truth, his mercy, his grace. Don't rationalize evil, don't justify evil. Well, I had to do this. No, you never have to do evil. You might defend yourself, and it's, it's something evil is averted. Um, but you don't ever have to do evil. Um, and it's a messy world. But evil has no power over us. It always contains a lie that it can deliver something it can't deliver. It can it can solve something that can't be solved through evil. I, I love the way Isaiah says it. Isaiah five twenty. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. We live in a culture right now that that is the epitome of this. You will be shouted down in our culture if you dare to confront any of the the cultural beliefs that people have embraced and are embracing. And it is so institutionalized that that, uh, most of us are self-editing. I'm not going to put myself in that situation to go through that brain damage and that heartache and frustration. See, that's when evil uh, carries the day. What's the alternative? Is to confront evil. Not with evil, but to say, uh, you know, that's an interesting point of view, but you still haven't dealt with the real issue here. That is, what does God's word say about this situation? And we don't need to be obnoxious, we don't need to be you know, belligerent, but we need to be confident to say, if I am bumping into evil, I want to find the most appropriate way to confront that evil at the smallest level I can, is is non-emotionally as possible, and if it escalates, I'm gonna I'm not gonna stop confronting this evil. It's not okay to enslave people. It's not okay to abuse people. It's not okay to disparage people. It's not okay to treat people this way. Our anthropology is that we're made in the image of God. Everybody is. And that's why the most horrifically evil person deserves their day in court and and good counsel. Because if justice is to prevail, even evil people should get justice, right? So this is how we are. And we need to then keep this in sight. Because we will constantly in our culture be bumping into people who are calling evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And they, want to take, and they want to train our children how to think that way and obey those dictates. Instead of being paranoid and reactionary and falling back into a little holy huddle, we need to engage the culture and say, why is that true? Why do you think that's true? Why is that okay? And it's messy. It's messy. We can't save the world, but we can speak up for what is good and true and right in the world. And if we do it with a winsome and gracious, respectful approach, uh, we will carry the day. On his dying day, Wil- uh, um, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, one of the most influential men in Great Britain, uh, got a message, and it was, slavery has been repealed in Great Britain. He'd been working for 50 years with his life group. He had a small group of guys that did a Bible study together. A little, little part of London called Clapham. A little, little neighborhood. And these guys would meet every week and pray for each other, read the word of God together. And, and part of their social impact was to say, hey, how are we doing against slavery? A 50-year fight against evil until finally it was uh, it was a socially changed environment. William Booth said, I don't like the idea that small children are being abused and taken advantage of in the streets of London. I can't stand the fact that single women and single moms are being abused, that sick people, unhealthy people, uh, mentally compromised people are being abandoned and, and treated like animals in our streets. And he started the Salvation Army. So, you see where this goes. When people confront evil, uh, when a guy who has an awesome job at the Department of Justice says, Honey, uh, I'm going to leave my cushy, fantastic job that I went to an expensive law school to get, and, and I want you and me and our little kids to spend the rest of our lives fighting human trafficking. And now, 25 years later, Gary Haugen, International Justice Mission, has changed the face of human trafficking across the world. He stepped up and confronted evil, starting with Rwanda. He was sent by the Department of Justice and the United Nations to investigate Rwanda, and he said, this should not have happened. And he's given himself for the last 25 years. I can tell you endless stories, you know about them. These are the big examples, but we are the small on the street examples of confronting evil with love. Temptation. Evil deliver us from the evil in temptation, lead us not into temptation. That's the weirdest phrase you can imagine. "Oh God, not again, don't lead me into temptation. I can do it myself. Thank you, you know? No, the, 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 the structure of the language here uh, is hard. It's a, it's a hard structure, What it means is, carry us through temptation. Help us push through temptation. If you are aspiring to go to Europe or any, anywhere, <laughs> practically this summer, it's going to be a mess. Uh, You want to go to Venice this week, be prepared to stand like this and move like this through streets. But if you have a guide or a friend who lives there, what will they say to you? Follow me. We're to get through this. I know how to get around this. I know how to get through this. Uh, That's what it means to lead us not into temptation. Lord, lead us in your way that we can move through temptation with confidence. Isn't that, that's a change of meaning, right? But that's actually what the structure of the language is. So lead us into temptation doesn't mean, please, this time, get it right. It's that continue helping us confront the very things that tempt us. Uh, God doesn't treat evil. God doesn't tempt us. Evil and temptation never lead us to his goodness or the goodness we desire. Uh, I, I love the way James said it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the gist of this is basically, when we're tempted, we don't have to do what we want to do. (laughs) I mean, that might be a goofy way of thinking about it. But temptation is not doing what you'd like to do. Because it's the whole point of temptation. It looks really appealing. It doesn't matter what kind of temptation it is. I mean, pick from the list, you know. Um, Dorothy Sayers, the great British writer, uh, uh, kind of a counterpart to C.S. Lewis, uh, divided the sins, uh, uh, human sins, into the sins uh, of the morning and the sins of the afternoon. Uh, others would call them the hot sins and the cold sins. And so when you, when you talk about sin and temptation, immediately everybody thinks about, oh, sexual temptation. Um man sexual temptation is is like obvious how about this one the temptation to gossip the temptation to be envious and jealous the temptation to want to seek somebody's downfall the temptation to cheat lie and steal these are the cold sins of the afternoon these are the subtle ones that are easy to miss The hot ones, we go. Oh, that person just swore. You can't watch Ted Lasso. If you've been watching Ted Lasso, you can't watch Ted Lasso and not hear somebody swear. After a while, it sounds mellifluous and poetic. That's not to say we, you know, we should get used to hearing people swear. But there's there's a sense in which the most outrageous kinds of sins uh, are serious. All sin is serious. It robs us of what uh, is ours by having been created in God's image. But we are so uh, head faked by the fact that sin is much more, uh, temptation is much more subtle uh, than we think. We're tempted to not believe that we're worth anything. We're tempted not to believe that we have value. We're tempted to believe that we should compromise ourselves in order to get what we need because there's no other way to get it. We're tempted to think that we're more important than everybody around us. You you see where this goes? It's so much more subtle and therefore so much more deadly than we, we think. We don't have to do what we want to do. I want to inflict pain on myself. You don't have to do that. Why are you tempted to do that? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I feel like I need to. Why are you tempted to use people sexually? What do you mean use people sexually? Well, you're not making a lifelong commitment to this person, but you want to be involved with them sexually. You're using them. No, I'm in love. It's awesome. It's great. Okay. How about this one? Uh, the government doesn't deserve one more penny from me. Fine, get a really good accountant. Don't cheat on your taxes, right? So don't do what you want to do. Oscar Wilde, I love Oscar Wilde, he famously said, I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> can you relate to this? Of course you can. Uh, and Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, um, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And you might be hearing this, going, "No way, way! This is what God can do if we will simply take Him seriously." Um, Adam and Eve had a major, major issue of FOMO. They were, they had a fear of missing out, and Satan said, "You know what?" If you do that, it's going to be awesome. Oh, no, no. Well, maybe. <laughs> There's has a fear of missing out. I could resist anything but temptation. But the fact is, had they been on their game, they would have said, Says who? You know, God's going to be back in the garden a little bit. Well, let's, let's all get together and discuss it. If you have a better idea, I'm glad to hear it. You can convince him, too. You know, well, God, you know. At, you know, one of the responses was, you know, God said, if, "If we even touch it, we'll die." Well, He didn't say that. So Satan goes, "Well, no. If you touch it, you won't die," which was true. He touched it. I didn't die. It must be okay. Temptation is plausible. It, there's, a, there's a logic to temptation. You go, "Yeah, that makes a lot of sense." I wonder if I can make that actually work. Here's the crazy thing: temptation is not sin. It's the attraction of our sinful nature to indulge in evil. Therefore, we can resist, rebuke, reject temptation as a false solution to us finding the the satisfaction, the happiness that we need. When people compromise themselves economically, sexually, intellectually, socially, uh, morally, uh, however we do it, it's because we think this is the best deal I can get. It does not get better than this. I have, I have no other choice. And over and over and over again, we realize I do have a choice, and that was not a good one. And temptation is often the way uh, that the enemy uh, wants us to meet our emotional needs. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people uh, about situations they're in, and I'll say, "What was going on there for you?" I don't. I'm not judgmental when people are tempted or sinful. It, I, I for whatever reason, I, it's, I don't feel judgmental. Because I feel like I can do anything anybody else has done so easily that I have no judgment. I just have curiosity. Why, why was that important to you? Why did you do that? Why did that seem like a good idea? And what it usually comes out at, to is that I was socially embarrassed and I felt like I had no options to preserve my dignity. So I said some things that I shouldn't have said. I, I, I agreed to do some things I shouldn't have done. Or... I had this emotional need, and this is the best way I could fill it. My, my marriage is flat. I, didn't, I don't think it's going anywhere. I met this person who's awesome and wonderful, and it's true love. Mm. Wow. Okay, let's talk about that. And as you unpack it, you realize, wow, real emotional needs, real needs, authentic, valid needs, nothing wrong with those needs. The way you're going about fulfilling those needs, mm, is going to destroy you, crush your spirit, hurt other people. That's not the way through this to lead us not into temptation here, is let God show you how to understand what's going on in you in this relationship you're in. And not pretending you can just turn a blind eye to the reality of your life, and it's all going to be better when you own this, do this, buy this, experience this, right? So we all know this, and this is the nature of temptation. Um, But we see that Jesus himself was tempted. He goes out into the desert, and Satan tempts him. Uh, throughout his whole ministry, he's being tempted by one thing or another power, prestige, control. Uh, uh, you know, and the writer of Hebrews says this For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. And the apostle John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Which brings us to forgiveness, right? Uh, evil, deliver us from the evil one. Temptation, lead us not into temptation. So what, what is forgiveness about? When we, when we read this, forgive us our debts as uh, we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, this word, uh, a debt, uh, is uh, literally something you owe. It's also uh, something that you've done that violates somebody else's rights. Uh, That's why we use the word trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses. Uh, It's also really just the word fail. So forgive us our fails as we also forgive those who fail. Maybe that helps you more. I I, I find that to be a a more helpful word. It's actually part of the, the construct of the word, so I'm not adding something into it. But there's you know, most of these words have these interesting features. And and you just can't say what well, means that it's, it does mean that, but let's look at it from all the facets. And, and it's that you know, that whole point when you have a, a cut glass, a cut crystal, and you get the spread of colors. It's a crystal. It's, it's, light is clear, but when you when you refract it, also you see all oh, the elements of that light. And that's what we're doing with these definitions, I'm not playing fast and loose with them. We're saying, here's the here's the the depth of these things. So God's forgiveness of our failure sets us free to forgive others of their failures. And so practicing forgiveness sets us free to live and love beyond failure and by faith. God does not want us to live out of failure. I'm such a loser. But by faith, I am loved by God. And I'm learning how to live in that love. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor during the Nazi regime. He was actually murdered, I mean, evilly, I mean, the whole thing was evil, but uh, he really offended Hitler because he was an outspoken follower of Jesus, influenced so many Germans. He was, he was imprisoned by Hitler, and when Hitler knew he was going to die, he made it a point, and the Americans were coming, he knew what he was going to do, and that he waited to the very end, he said, kill Bonhoeffer. He was evil, 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 horrible. And He's an amazing man, and if you ever read anything by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it, it'll blow your mind and warm your heart. But he, he said in this, in, during this horrible time in community with other people, he said, in a word, live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. For without it, no human fellowship, least of all a marriage, can survive. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't find fault with each other, but accept each other as you are. And forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. The saddest thing in life is being unwilling to receive or give forgiveness. I'm unforgivable. Really? No. Unless you're saying you're the fourth member of the Trinity, that you're equal to God, uh, you have no authority to say that. And that's a lie from Satan. You are not unforgivable. I don't like your haircut, but I think you're not unforgivable. You know, I mean, there's lots of things we can critique about each other. We're not unforgivable. So the saddest thing in life is being unwilling to receive forgiveness for granted. Uh, We get stuck when we can't forgive ourselves. Pride stands in our way if we stand on our pride. I was talking to a friend, and he went through a horrible situation where he made a major stupid move. Um, He didn't actually do anything sinful, but what he was doing was moving in that direction. And he got called out on it in a very public way. And one day, I opened the Wall Street Journal, and there he is. I'm like, oh. And for the longest time, you know, he's, he dealt with the implications of all that, how embarrassing it was. And, uh, and at one point, you know, he said, oh, I just can't believe I did that. I'm like, hey, can we just have a moment of understanding here? Do you know that that's a statement of pride? What do you mean? I feel horrible about it. You keep saying, I can't believe I did that. Why is that so unbelievable? It's like, oh, oh. Because the reason I said that was that he was not forgiving himself. He couldn't forgive himself because that was unbelievable. Well, are you God? Are you perfect? You came down from on high and committed a sin? No, you're, you're a wretched human being, loved by God, with amazing capacities. You've helped zillions of people. You will continue to do that. God loves you. You made a boneheaded move based on a felt need that you thought could be satisfied. And you're moving in that direction. You you got caught out at it by a person who was trying to embarrass you, blah, 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 blah. The trap was set. You you went for it. Believe it. And also believe that you are forgiven. Forgive you. This is one of the hardest things any of us deal with is forgiving ourselves. Because pride stands in the way as we stand in our pride. We stay stuck in pride by not forgiving ourselves or others. And uh, instead what we need is empathy and humility. It might be a wound from childhood we can't let go of. Perhaps it's a moral failure or a shattered dream. It could be a difficult friendship, marriage, family situation. Uh, It could be resentment for abuse, infidelity, abortion, divorce, addiction, abandonment that we've committed or has been committed to us, by us. Uh, most parents I know would love to have another chance to raise their children. I mean, I, I went through this a few years ago. I kept saying to the girls, you know, Gosh, I wish I'd been a better dad. Like, finally, they said, Would you just stop? You've been a great dad. And that just totally undid me. Because I always felt like, Well, hey, yeah, I'm trying to be a good dad, but I've been so preoccupied with the normal things I have to do work, you know, and all that. And then, you know, how it is for a parent, you look back and you go, Gosh, Uh, I wish I could do it over again because I could see how well I could have done it better. Well, at the time, though, it was just fine. I won't say more about that, but the idea is that um, are you feeling frustrated with yourself, angry at yourself, and that you've hurt yourself? Or are you feeling frustrated with somebody else, angry at somebody else, and you've been hurt by somebody else? Let me cut to the chase. Forgive them. Start by forgiving yourself and forgive them. You're not perfect, you never will be. You'll never be a perfect husband, wife, father, grandfather, grandmother. You'll never be perfect at anything you do. You can't even be a perfect idiot because every once in a while you lap into doing great things. You you lapse into doing wonderful things and you go, ah, I ruined my record as a perfect idiot, you know. Um, So forgiveness isn't denying, minimizing, or approving what you have done or what others have done to you. It's not that. Uh, We're not advocates of cheap grace or gaming forgiveness. Well, you know, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. It's an awesome relationship. We're not pretending that sin doesn't matter, that temptation isn't real. We're saying there's something bigger at play here. It's God. He gets to tell us who we are and what our life means. He is the source of the knowledge that helps us navigate the streets of his kingdom. Forgiveness is God's solution for you. It releases you from bondage to other people's sin. If you don't forgive, you're like the person drinking poison hoping somebody else will die. You're abusing yourself for no reason that's good for anybody except for your pride or your fear of having to move on. Final thing I'll say about forgiveness is this. To forgive someone does not necessarily mean that you will be reconciled to them. They're too... linked but separate things. If you think, I can't forgive because that means I'd have to reconcile with this person and be in a relationship with them, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means you have to stop letting them live rent-free in your head. You let that go. You're not approving it, condoning it. You're just saying, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to forgive them. And if it's possible, you can reconcile with that person. You can make reparations, Whatever. I mean, there's possibilities, but the main thing is forgiving. Start with forgiveness and see what follows from that. David said it this way: Create a pure heart in me, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Rebuild me. That was Psalm 51 after he'd had this horrible sin with Bathsheba, devastating his own family and his own nation. And God took him through a process of healing and and um, forgiveness. To where he could say his prayer became, Create a pure heart in me, O Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. So let me wrap up by saying this. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we conclude that prayer on a note of triumphant doxology. Doxology just means praise. Uh, So the prayer ended today with those wonderful words For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's not in the prayer. It's not in the prayer in Matthew, not in the prayer in Luke. Uh, What that is, is the church. Uh, from the second century on saying, I can't help but read this prayer or say this prayer. I would not want to then offer praise to God. So that was tacked on um, in, the, in the church early on. And it's continued to be part of what the church prays. It's, here's the prayer Jesus taught us. And when I finish praying it, I can't help but quote. This is really a real quote from 1 Chronicles twenty nine eleven. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So we've tacked that on as a doxology. I love the fact that we end the prayer with that. It doesn't stop at evil. It stops with the awesomeness of God. That's where God's forgiveness takes us into the full access of God's kingdom. This is why we follow Jesus, our Lord, and our Savior, the hope of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for that commitment you made and that promise you fulfilled. That everything is different and will be different we 're living in your kingdom now, but not yet fully. we are new creations in you now, but yet not fully not not yet fully clear on what will become, but we know we 're in this relationship, a journey with you, that we are saved in you and we 're being sanctified in you we 've been justified by your grace we 're being trained as your disciples, as your beloved children to take up our full identity in your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that you would give them hope and encouragement. Help them, Lord, uh, to let go of being heroes, uh, but rather becoming guides. Give us the knowledge that allows us to make our way through your kingdom uh, and be able to help other people do likewise. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Let's wrap up worship uh, with some offering. That is offering of you as we sing to him. Uh, as, we, as we, we recognize it's Him calling us uh, to walk with Him in newness and fullness of life. Let's do that together.
0: I search the world but it couldn't feel me Man's empty praise Treasure's the thing I never would know Then you came along And put me back together And every desire Is now satisfied here in your love Oh you call me friend, because mm. the God of the mountain, oh, yeah, is the God of the valley. And there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. Oh, there's nothing, yeah, better than you. There's no You're the only one who can, yeah. You turn graves into gardens. oh yeah. You turn balls into whities. You turn seas into highways. You're the only
3: Oh, if the Lord is in your life, you have a majority. You and God are a majority. Uh, If you haven't received him in your life, receive him today. Say, Lord, come into my life. If you've been far from him and you feel unworthy, come back. It's a homecoming for you. If you're feeling strong and and right on target, keep your eyes on him. Uh, Otherwise, you start to get nervous and think, oh, no, what am I doing here? Trusting God. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who wants to give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him I'll be yours for now and evermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. If we can pray for you, go out to the prayer garden and will pray with you. If you'd like to get something to eat, grab some meat on your way out. See you next week.
0: Oh, nothing better than you. No, there's none.